This is the Shift Podcast. On the Shift Daily Podcast, we continue our conversation about opioids with Garth Mullen. We started it yesterday. It continues today. Greg Fish gets in on the call, too, with laser conspiracies from space. Lasers from space. Apparently, lasers from space, not even really a thing. Not to the point where they could start fires in California, in case you've read it online. Are you okay with a film festival in a Swedish lighthouse for one person? And are you okay with spicy food? We're talking like, whoa, pepper spicy. It's all in the Shift Daily Podcast. We've received many requests and ideas. Shane at it's the shift.ca. By the way, if you want to send them in, please do. Now, please allow me to explain. We don't get a chance to action on all of them yet. One of them that has come in, a couple of different people, Derek in Edmonton, uh, Elijah Pitscalny, our buddy who rode his bike from Saskatoon all the way to Vancouver, cycle to stop the harm. There have been many of you that have said, but what about opioids? We've heard in the news, opioid uh, overdoses, drug overdoses in general are up through COVID. So chicken and an egg, perhaps. I am so out of my depth with this. I need help and I need understanding because I've just never been a drugs guy. Not because I think drugs are bad and wrong and, you know, I've always sort of admired, if, I, if I'm if i honest, the guys that would, you know, take acid or smoke pot and write some poetry that was just mind-blowing. But it was just never my thing. I just didn't ever fit into that world. Many people have lived that world all of their lives. So I come into this conversation a little bit hesitant because I... I'm out of my lane. I don't know. And that's the reason why we've invited Garth to be here to start the conversation because I know that Garth is going to help me understand, help you understand, and uh, sort of hold our hand, if if you will, to understand how opioids are in this world all day, every day, everywhere. Garth Mullins is the host and executive producer of the Crackdown podcast. He's a former heroin user, and he's in Vancouver, and he joins us now. Thank you, Garth, for spending time with us here on The Shift. Hey, Shane. Thanks for having me. So today, before we get into the story of Garth, what are you seeing in and around opioids today? What does it look like? Uh an entirely predictable catastrophe um, of uh, a stack of dead friends, loved ones, community members, uh, people across North America that's so big and so high and the number is so large. It's uh, like I've lost the capacity to count the people that I've lost personally, that we've all lost. And so I've started counting the people who are still here. Is it, is it scary as a human to not be surprised now when somebody dies? Is that a scary moment where, hey, by the way, bad news, and you're like, okay, and then you go about your day? Is that a scary moment to be so surrounded by it? Yeah, I mean, it's true. You're, you're kind of not surprised that someone dies, but the person who dies, like this week, just a couple days ago, I guess uh, – you know, it would be last week <laughs> um, as a broadcast time. Uh, a good friend of ours, uh, Ron, died, you know, and uh, I just, he was such a community builder and an activist and uh, such a solid guy. Guy from Alberta. Um, I forget what First Nation he was from, but uh, he's lived out here for a long time, you know guy who was really proud like a bunch of years ago got his uh, forklift ticket and uh you know he he used to quip to me now that i got my forklift ticket nobody's safe <laughs> and um he's gone and he's just you didn't think it was gonna be him you know and he's gone and he's just left this 
gaping, ragged hole in the middle of us. And that was just, a, you know, a few days ago. And, and, and today, last night, I was putting together a playlist for his memorial, you know, and, and in my, in my community here in Vancouver, and we're organizing memorials all the time. You know, it's a, it's kind of like a, an act, a political act, an act against erasure and disappearance that um, when some of us die, that the lives were important and people cared for each other. And these were smart people, not just like waifs lost in the chaos or something as, as you might, you might hear on the news or something like that. So, yeah, I mean, that's what I was doing. I was picking out a playlist of songs for him last night. Like, and he liked kind of metal and industrial and, and uh, you know, so I was picking these songs that I, I knew he liked. And it's just, I mean, I've now made these kind of playlists a bunch of times, like half my Spotify playlists are for people's funerals. And I, uh, you know, and, and I was listening to the disturbed, um, you know, their sort of metalish ballad cover of the sound of silence. And, uh, geez, that hit me. I was just like, Oh, wearing the headphones here, just like head down on the table. Just, Oh, just like snot crying, you know? Well, and that's the, that's the thing is it, it, that song, first of all, is, remarkable the emotion inside it so i hear that but we think of them them see in my language i teach people them creates separation the words them and they create separation between you and someone else and if you ever want to connect with somebody you don't use the words they and them so uh allow me to correct myself we think of these people like they are that down and out cracked out out of a movie um you know no teeth homeless hooker and i I, i'm being direct and harsh there but that's truly what people think when they think of this scenario and it's that's not the kind not the kind that's not the situation that all these people are in Mm -hmm. yeah i mean this is the thing right is like if you're poor and you got nowhere to go then you're the person the drug user that people see and i have been that person but I've also been the person with the good union job, uh, calling my dealer, uh, getting heroin, getting my wake up heroin in my arm, going off to work, working every day, not missing shifts, not missing nothing, and um, coming home, right? And you don't think of that. I worked flying out of Edmonton in a mining camp in the Northwest Territories, well, in a, in a gold mine, you know, and, and we lived, in, it, was a, it was a dry camp, so you couldn't have any boost. So the guys up there, like you work a 12-hour shift in the mill or underground you know, you want to have something to take the edge off. And most people would just have a beer. You can't have beer up there. So people are smuggling in Coke or whatever. And you don't think of some guy who was just running the diamond drill on the 250 meter underground level um, as, oh, that's my stereotype of a drug drug user. But um, that guy was, you know, and that is a hard job. And that's a, a, you know, a lot of pressure. And you you work 12 hours. Maybe you don't see the sun for two weeks. You don't see your family for two weeks. That's a drug user, you know, so all over, all over all the resource uh, provinces like BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, all, all in the West and all in the U.S. states too. Um, those people were going to work every day, working at hard jobs and stuff like me, like lots of people. We're, we're drug users. So people have it twisted. You know, th- that's just the drug user when the stereotype you're talking about that's easy to see, that's easy for the media to see, right? Because the rest of us who are going to work. Like if you're a drug user, there's a lot of shame. And if you're found out, you can get fired or evicted. Your family can shun you or your friends can shun you or whatever. So like you keep that, you keep that locked down. You know, you don't talk about that a lot. Usually Um, you certainly probably don't go on radio shows (laughs) to tell everybody (laughs) about it. But uh, you know, so, so the, the drug user of the popular imagination is the one that is by economic necessity Mm -hmm. visible. So it's like every time you see you're driving home or like whatever you're doing, you see somebody and you think, oh, yeah, they're really wired. They're really messed up. Just think there's like a 10 or 15 or 100 other people um, that are at home yeah. somewhere. And the coroner here in B.C. would tell would tell you that I'm absolutely right based on where they find the dead bodies. They find the dead bodies by themselves at home not in the street. That's where people die. That's where people are using drugs. I find it 
my experience of this, Garth, is both confusing and heart-wrenching and heartbreaking. Um, and I feel a little bit naive. And I just wanted to acknowledge that, sort of honor that feeling. I feel a little naive in this conversation. Um, your story, I mean, you've been a user for a long time. And if I get the language wrong, by the way, please correct me because I really don't know the language. Um, sure. But you, you've been a user for a long time. So maybe some background. When did you start and what did that look like and where are you at today? I guess I was a teenager, you know, um, and I'm middle aged now. So that was a long time ago. And uh, I was... Uh, you know, I was a really alienated kid. Um, you know, I, I was, uh, there were, there was, uh, you know, there was an adult that I was in the care of, uh, not in my family, but that, that is the kind of person that should not be around children. And, um, yeah, I think I just, I just got, uh, somehow off track when I was under the age of 10 and just got outside of my own, family and classmates and society. And I was just like a ghost in the world, you know, and I was just like outside of everything. And then, uh, at some point in my, in my teenage years, um, you know, I, I started, uh, drinking and doing, uh, you know, all the, uh, <laughs> poetry writing drugs that you were talking <laughs> about earlier. Uh, and, and I was like, Oh yeah, this is great. Uh, like I'm, I'm taking a hammer and I'm trying to kill this feeling and I'm whacking away at it. And then uh, I do heroin and I just find, oh, there's not a hammer. There's just a beautiful little switch. And you just switch off that howling alienation, this screaming ghost cry in your ears for as long as you can remember is suddenly quiet. And, uh, and it's not like you're all messed up and high. Wow. You're just like, oh, wow, it's calm. I feel normal. I feel okay. And you think maybe this is what everybody else is feeling all the time. And it explains why they seem so well adjusted and happy. And um, once you found that little switch to turn off the howling, uh, it's pretty hard to not hit that again. And then if you, you know, if you use opioids enough, you're going to get a habit. So not only if you stop using opioids, does the terrible howling come back, you know, like in, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, when they take the cover, cover off the Ark and all the ghosts fly out and, and uh, Indiana Jones is like, close your eyes, Marion, close your eyes. And the ghosts go and kill everybody that's around mm -hmm. it. Anyway, maybe this is too no, old. No, it's perfect for us. Everybody. We talk about that show often. <laughs> yeah, I love it. <laughs> well, put put clip yeah. here. Awesome. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So it's like once you found a way to put the lid back on that terrible Indiana Jones ghost arc, you'll go back. But uh, once you go back several times, you know, after a few weeks or several weeks, um, you'll be, uh, you'll have a physical dependency too. And I got to tell you, dope sickness is the, is the, is the worst kind of sickness I've had. I mean, I haven't a touch wood had COVID myself, but, uh, it it's, it is bad. And so you'll do, you'll just become a daily, uh, drug user. You know, you'll just, you'll just do that every day, a couple times a day. And then, uh, because everything about it is illegal, uh, it completely changes your life. Um, well, legality. Um, do the safe injection sites and, you know, making it legal, does it help or fix the problem or make it worse? Oh, uh, those definitely will improve things. I mean, uh, not offering. So like when I started using uh, heroin, you could not get new syringes. And, um, you know, that was, that was my, my life back then. I would have the same syringe for a month. It would be dull. Uh, people had to share syringes. I mean, we did use bleach and stuff to, to clean them. That was what was suggested. That was harm reduction. Well, that irony of the uh, self-awareness to clean a syringe before sharing it, I, you can't excuse that irony, right? To have the awareness to know how bad that is and to go through the effort of doing it, but then still be compelled to do it. Uh, drug users are really rational though. You know, this is, this is the myth that people are just like completely out of it. Zombies. Like y y for me, using heroin gave me a sense of control in my life. Wow. Actually using heroin probably stopped me from killing myself, you know? Uh, so it's just like, I don't think I've ever said that out loud before. Are you okay with that? Well, 
I think it's true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, sometimes you're running your mouth and you're like, Ooh, yeah. I just said the truth. Yeah. Well, yeah, you do. You're like, Oh, I'm yeah. hearing this for the first time too. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I, I was using um, the same syringe or we were sharing syringes and, and people around me were like me, you know, like uh, probably, you know, messed up somehow, but uh, trying to get relief from that. Uh, and also, you know, aside from the relief you feel uh, like opioids do feel good. It is like, it is fun. It is awesome. So um, I'm not, I'm not suggesting people change their life or do anything, but uh, you, you can't deny the just people like to do drugs recreationally. And that's how most people use them. But people who are wired like me, it's every day and we're, you know, bleaching the syringes or whatever. And they won't give us new syringes because around that time, there were people exactly like Jason Kenny and all of these, uh, you know, conservative people all over North America and, and everywhere in the world who were just like, no, no, no. It just encourages them. No. And so uh, here in Vancouver, uh, we had uh, the highest rate of HIV transmission in the industrial world at that time. It was an epidemic, you know, it was like a, it was an explosion. And um, so eventually, um, because there was uh, some medical professionals who cared and some drug users who spoke up, uh, they started being able to distribute or exchange new syringes and their rates of HIV transmission started to fall. And this is where the idea for the safe injection site started to come from is that that time there was an overdose crisis here in the nineties, same thing, strong heroin, people dying. And so safe injection sites came in North America anyway, from a generation ago. So they're actually an idea from the last crisis. And it's sort of amazes me that we're, we still talk about them, but it's just like, it's triage, right? It is, um, it is like, uh, if, if there's an accident, you got to do first aid, you know, you got to bind the wound. That's not the only care. That's not the only thing you have to do, but it's the first thing, right? So if someone's going to die, uh, and getting some naloxone into them can stop that, then you got to set up the ideal situation for people to get naloxone into them. And I know some people out there are thinking, well, just don't do drugs. And, um, People have been saying that exact idea for, geez, over a century, most of the 20th century, um, you know, so far into this one, and it just doesn't work. In fact, more and more people are using drugs. As we generate a more traumatizing and alienating society, more and more people are, are using drugs, and the drugs are becoming uh, more lethal. So um, that doesn't work. So yeah, uh, safe injection sites definitely work. If you decriminalize it, then what you do is you stop having jail as our primary means of treatment. Like all the money that goes to do with the drugs and the overdose crisis and all that, most of it, the vast majority goes to police, courts, and jails. And those things are not set up to help people. Those things are set up to punish people. And it doesn't work. You know, you may find the odd person who said, I got scared straight in jail. And, you know, but for most people, uh, jail makes things a lot worse it disrupts your life. It disrupts your support network. It disrupts your treatment if you're getting some kind of drug treatment. And if you come out of jail, you're much, much, much lower and more likely to die of an overdose right after that than you are if you weren't. So uh, just taking jail out of the equation is a big step forward. It will not end the deaths, but it will reduce the, um, it will reduce the harm caused by the legal system's interference in people's lives. I hear you took me right back to that example that you provided with the diamond cutter guy, right? And you took uh -huh. me right back to that place, that place where you said, you know, that's the guy who is functioning and on the drugs and, you know, fears losing his job or going to jail. Like to me, it, it seems like when you change the, the legal system around it, um, you change, um, you change that guy's life, right? Well, that guy, let's, let's imagine that guy. I, I'm not going to like say his name or whatever, but um, you know, he, he, uh, I, I'm sure he would have just had a beer after yeah. work, you know? So already prohibition rules have made him a cocaine user. But why is he using cocaine instead of pot or something like that? Well, if they urine screen you, cocaine moves through your system faster. So it's kind of like the drug of choice for a lot of people who get uh, piss tested. Right. So the rules are now deciding what drugs people use. So imagine that you give this guy more choice instead of the threat of jail or getting fired. Maybe he's just having a beer after work. When we say 
maybe, maybe all of us are, are, are able to reduce it if you, if you take the criminalization off. So this all started in 1908 when they made opium illegal. And before then, people weren't shooting heroin. People were smoking opium, which is a, a much, much uh, softer version. And if, if I, you could wave, wave a magic wand and just have people smoke opium again, God, we would uh, reduce all the, uh, all the deaths. We would reduce all the problems, you know, but it's, it's because they made it illegal that people had to make something smaller. Same thing with alcohol prohibition. Everyone had a beer until alcohol prohibition. And then you got moonshine because people got to transport it around. So you need a smaller volume, bigger bang for the buck, yep. all that. So the harder the police chase after the whole uh, uh, drug ecosystem, the stronger and smaller the drugs get. And so, you know, I, in my lifetime, I've seen us gone, go from just regular heroin to what they call China white, which was kind of strong heroin to fentanyl to, I mean, what car fentanyl, it's just like, it's an arms race. Everybody seems to imagine that legalizing means kind of like it did with pot. I mean, explosion of stores on every corner. And that means you can go buy heroin just, you know, out of your, your corner bodega. So I think that that's also an assumption. And I had fentanyl after surgery once and they asked me, they said, would you be comfortable with, um, you know, fentanyl? And I was like, well, <laughs> did you get it in an alley? And they're like, no, no, it's the proper stuff. And, uh, and I was like, well, is it safe? She goes, when we administer it this much for this purpose, this is what it's supposed to be used for. I was like, okay, then fine. And then, so I came out of my surgery. How's your pain? Uh, it was nasty pain. And she says, if it's okay with you, we'll push the fentanyl now. And I was like, yeah. And I got to tell you, that was probably the most awesome seven seconds of my life. I was <laughs> asleep very quickly. But that moment was where I went, okay, I get it. Uh-huh. I understand why somebody would seek that out. Um, it must be difficult to go through this process. As you said, more socialization. It was so, more social isolation. Um, and you're dealing with the deaths of friends and community members consistently. How hard is it for you when you put your head down on the desk, you're listening to Disturbed, the sound of silence is hitting you. And so you're trying to be an advocate. You're standing up in this world today. You've got your podcast, the Crackdown Podcast. You're trying to be a leader in your community. And yet you're stepping into this war at the shittiest time of all, right? Like it is the most isolated through COVID. It is the most isolated socially with social media. And yet you're trying to do this now. And you're still going through your thing. So what's that experience like? Yeah, I mean, I I don't lie. January has been hard. You know, we've had a lot of losses around here. I was just telling you about Ron, but there's there's been we've been taking a lot of hits, and it's. I think a lot of people are finding this month pretty hard, and I know a lot of people have lost people. Uh, not just the overdose crisis, but just um, you know the pandemic has put a lot of strain on people's relationships. Um, you know, some people are, are marriages are splitting up. Um, you know, having kids at home, it's like a lot of work, I'm a sorry. lot of pressure. I, I don't have kids, but, but uh, it's tough, you know? Um, but on the other hand, I, I, the drug war has been with me my whole life. People have been dying since I was a teenager. Like I've just always known I've been to, must've been 10 or 20 times as many funerals, probably more than weddings. Like I, I've been to a, enough uh, weddings I could count on one hand. I can't count the number of funerals. I I gave up trying to count the amount of people I know that are gone, you know? So uh, I feel like I've been training for the pandemic my whole life. So when it happened, I was just like, oh yeah, here's just another layer of, uh, you know, of crisis on top of the layers of crisis that just keep building up. And um, I didn't start doing this during the pandemic. I've been doing uh, uh, like advocating for, these kind of measures since before this current overdose crisis started, you know, when it started here in BC, they officially acknowledged it starting in 2016 in the spring, but it seemed to me it was around for a few years before that because I, I was, uh, I was using heroin during the last overdose crisis in the nineties in Vancouver. And um, you know, it's just, I guess, how does it feel? It just feels like 
like this horrible sense of predictable vertigo. Like you're standing on the edge of a cliff, but you just know you're walking up to it. And you're just like, oh, are we all going to get pushed over this completely predictable cliff? Like, do we have to all do this? So uh, it's, it's like, um, yeah, it's a weird mix of things, I guess. It's the Shift Podcast. It is time for us on the Shift to welcome in uh, the world of weird things and Greg Fish. Welcome, welcome to the world of weird things with Greg Fish. All right, Fish. We're digging into. I don't like talking about conspiracy theories because they often get misunderstood. We are not endorsing this conspiracy theory, but it's. I think it's important that we mention it for two reasons. Number one being um, how crazy the idea is, and it's from a political person who should know better, or maybe shouldn't, I don't know. Maybe I lost myself on that one. Plus, um, the science behind it, worldofweirdthings.com for the blog and the podcast. Hey, Greg, how are you? I'm doing I'm doing just fine. How about yourself? Uh, things are great here. Um, so the storyline of this, laser beams from space causing fires in California. Now, it is Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, a GOP congresswoman from, from your country in America, that started, well, didn't start it, but shared it publicly and turned this into the news story, and that the idea that it's a Jewish space laser that started the fires. So first of all, let's dig into each a uh, couple of these pieces. Um, uh, incredibly hurtful, inappropriate uh, comments from anybody, let alone a congresswoman. And now um, everything else I'll hand it to you. All right. Well, I, it's very hard to know where to start with this, uh, you know, fictional Death Star of David uh, that's apparently burning up California. <laughs> Death Star uh, of David. Oh, now, boy. I, I didn't come up with it. I just seen it. I, I've just seen it come around. And there, and there's, you know, I, I'm Jewish myself, um, and uh, I, a lot of Jews are are joking about this because honestly, at this point, you know, when you grow up from a very early age, accused of basically doing everything under the sun that is evil and wrong, you, you have to start laughing at these things, otherwise you'll snap. Now my reaction is, oh, I haven't heard this one before, That this is original. But the thing that really kind of caught my eye about this one is it's one of those cases where the only reason why it really had any traction and really got anywhere or, or and near enough to a congresswoman to really get started is because a lot of people learn about lasers and space solar and space technologies from science fiction, which is kind of like learning about sex from porn. It's very visually appealing, but you're going to have some wrong uh, ideas and some misconceptions. So I wanted to clear up a couple of them uh, with the article and with, with the segment. So first and foremost, we have to start with the fact that space lasers have actually been attempted. They have been studied by the United States as a form of missile defense against uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles under a guideline known as Strategic Defense Initiative. And they were kind of dismissed as being impractical because they would take a lot of power. It's very difficult to put them in the right orbits. They would be very limited in what they can do. Um, and the Soviet Union retaliated by launching a space laser prototype called Polus, which means pole, but like North Pole, South Pole, that sort of thing. Um, fun bonus fact, uh, the rocket that launched it was partially constructed in the truck factory from in my hometown. <laughs> I like the story uh, so of that's, the truck factory. That's yeah, good. so that's... Uh, so, so that's always fun. Um, but that prototype did not work. What happened is the stage that was supposed to insert it into orbit failed, and it kind of just came tumbling down. But the idea, it was a carbon dioxide laser that could put out a couple megawatts of power, and the idea was it would be able to knock out satellites. It would be able to uh, burn the incoming ballistic missiles and get them off track. Uh, but the reality is it may not have been enough power because... The thing about lasers is that we use lasers all the time in everything, and somehow we manage not to, you know, set everything on fire, you know, slice our houses in half or ourselves in half, because they don't put out a lot of energy. In fact, we fire lasers at Earth all the time from sensing satellites for things like elevation mapping, uh, weather mapping. There's a lot of sensing stuff that we do uh, for scientific research that's done by lasers, and the idea really is that 
Um, first of all, laser beams, as they increase in distance, they get broader and broader. They decohere. The even if it's an electron laser, the particles inside repel each other, so the beam becomes wider and wider, and the energy gets more and more diffused. So the farther away you are from the source, it takes exponentially more energy to deliver something you know significant. This is why um, there's still a lot of challenge in placing lasers on even um, naval destroyers. We just have demonstrators that can maybe put out a megawatt or two and shoot down a very carefully placed drone. Uh, we don't really have them as, as, as weapons. If you put that into orbit, you no you not just have you no longer just have the distance, you also have the atmosphere that further diffuses the laser. So you're now talking about petawatts of power, quadrillions of watts to even be able to reach the surface to cause any real damage. And that is way more power than we generate now. We're we're talking about something like a hundred petawatts to go from low just low Earth orbit down to the surface to really cause any damage. Uh, the most powerful lasers we have now top out at about 10 petawatts, but only for a femtosecond, which is a trillionth of a second, wow. um, if not if not a little bit less. And they so they, they can't really maintain a pulse enough to, to be a weaponized. A little bit less than a trillionth of a second. Oh, that's funny. Yes. Yeah, just just a, just a tad less, um, and we use them primarily to create antimatter uh, for tiny tiny little periods of time in tiny little spaces, so we can study more about particle physics and warping of space and time uh, on a quantum level. And so, launching something like that nowadays is impossible, um, and having it actually reach Earth as a weapon is simply impossible as well. So, in short, we do not have that kind of technology. Okay. Period. So the, the the Jew laser thing didn't happen. No. Um even Jews can't barter with the laws of physics. <laughs> I'm just gonna clarify Greg is Jewish. <laughs> yes, no I, I think I think I should <laughs> quick quick aside, I did I did run some of these jokes by my parents and they did tell me be careful because you, you have to keep notifying people that, that you well, again, this is one of those things where if people accuse you of all these conspiracies, you gotta you gotta have well, at least yeah. a little bit of fun with them because a little bit of gallows humor really helps because again, like really the root of it is that you have someone who's literally making physically impossible things up in order to carry out a vendetta against people she doesn't like. And that's really yeah. the long and short of it. And and I know we're, we're, we're having fun with it a little bit, but it really the, the crux of the matter is that it's terrifying that people who whose entire platform is, I really hate these groups of people, and I'm yeah. going to blame them for everything that's wrong with my constituents' lives, do nothing to actually improve my constituents' lives and feed them more conspiracy theories when they ask me why things haven't been working, that people like that getting elected is, is a sign that something is really wrong and really broken, and we really need to think about the choices that we're making when we vote. Well, and, and what happens in, in real life, because that's always where I take it, is that we, we are sitting here, uh, Shane and Greg, and I am not Jewish, but you are Jewish, and we can have conversations between two people who live in two different countries that have two different faith bases um, and uh, have fun with it and make jokes and learn things from each other, you know, and have some laughs and do all that. And what happens when people like this say things like this, it puts that filter on that everyone has to go, okay, wait a second, Shane's going to clarify, you know, Greg is Jewish and da, 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 so everyone understands the context of what's going on. When in reality, stereotypes come from somewhere. And there are many friendly, loving things that our friends do in life that are okay. And it's okay to talk about them. And it's okay to celebrate different aspects of everybody without it being terrible. And then people like this make it terrible when they say hurtful, painful things. Because her quote was... um uh, the orbital laser owned and operated by Jews. It wasn't even like Israeli military, right? Like it was so yeah. offside that it wasn't even, and I understand that Israel and, you know, part of the faith base is, is such a deeply rooted piece of the heart. And so it's more than just a country. But the reality is, is that it is so far offside that it takes away from the fact that, Greg, you make a joke about bartering that really should be fair ball. 
Yeah, and you know, another thing about it is that uh, she's also talking about like a space solar experiment, which is really meant to to be a thing that moves us into the future. Because the idea is that, you know, we, we want to have solar power. The best place to get it is in space, in orbit. And there's people experimenting with that and now casting doubt on these technologies by making up something that never happened using technologies that are physically impossible. It also undermines really legitimate efforts to understand how to get more clean power generation to places in the world that desperately need it because you know space solar the the right now the biggest challenge is we can definitely launch solar panels into space we can collect the sunlight the problem is getting the power back to earth and all the technologies focus on we're going to send the beam back we're going to reconcentrate that beam to produce the energy and, and capture as much of it as we possibly can you know there's not going to be like this giant death laser that's going to be cutting its way through the earth it's it's a very complicated um it's very complicated work it's being underwritten by a lot of companies uh, the US Air Force is interested in it and, and it's a, a very important technology also for nations in the developing world who need access to clean energy so they're not burning a ton of coal they're not adding to global warming so again this is another way that this is very harmful because it is casting doubt on a very promising very important green energy technology that we're still trying to figure out. And now if people are going to say, well, I don't want space solar because it means that right. we're going to be like blown up with a death laser. Yeah. That's another, that's another problem. And, and again, this is, this is another reason why we really need to pay attention to science literacy. Because if you really study some of these things, if you really just pay attention a little bit to some of these things, you can listen to these theories and say, well, that sounds like complete nonsense. That's not, that's not possible. This person's off their rocker. I'm not going to listen to them. Um, and that's exactly the reaction we should have. Uh, there is a clarification that came on text messages that I should pass on. It says, just to be clear, it was aliens that used their lasers to f create the fires in California. So that's the real conspiracy theory here <laughs> those, those those damn alien every year every year here in california there's something there's something there's something on fire and if the aliens are to blame then we really need to you know start building the space force and send them out there because right now all they're doing is parading around their fancy new uniforms that's right and uh, handsome uniforms mind you but still there's another honest question that comes in it uh, comes in on text it's this is an honest question so i might as well ask it it says what's a schmozzle Ah, well, the best way to describe it is a person who is a loser, but they're not, they're not a loser because like, they're just like, they're more like a loser, like they're unlucky. They're not a loser because they're, they're right. not good at stuff. They're just like, ah, stuff just keeps happening to them. I've, I've sort of always heard it as like, not like a disaster, but like a, uh, just a big mess, like uh, kind of a screw up yep. or, or something like that. Would that be fair ball for But Lovable too? screw up, but, but yeah, oh, okay. but lovable screw up. You're not like, it's kind of just like, Oh, you know, this person, he tries, bless his heart. He tries, but stuff just keeps <laughs> happening and things are just not going well for this person, but bless oh. his heart. He's trying. Uh, Greg Fish is worldofweirdthings.com. You can check out the website. You can go there, read the uh, articles. And in fact, even if you want to go deep into the archives, because the Illuminati chemtrails is also something else that uh, that got me from uh, from the article. Was that actually, did she include that too? Like, that was part of her... No, I, I felt like I really needed to call out the fact that, that every time something bad happens in California, there's always a conspiracy theory to jump on it. The chemtrails thing was actually from Alex Jones, um, mm. who is a big inspiration for a lot of Republican conspiracy theories. Yeah. Um, so that, that was, that was really fun. I, the thing that, again, the thing that always gets me is California is on fire every year and we have to invent space lasers for a place that has, had regular fire seasons for tens of thousands right. of years that <sighs> well it's a terrible return yeah. on investment when you could just use a match um exactly also, just go for it <laughs> someone else or gender reveal saying, party that yeah, that'll work or too. gender reveal party <laughs> fireworks um there was another text that came in and said uh they're going to build space lasers to protect us and they're going to get the aliens to pay for it so the america jokes are a fly perfect 
Uh, Greg Fish, uh, worldofweirdthings.com. Thanks, brother, and thanks for joining us on the call. It's great to see your face. Always a pleasure. This is the Shift Podcast. Let's check in with Maddie's Moondial and see what's going on here for the land of Are You Okay? Matt, you ready? Uh, yeah, let's, uh, let me just calibrate the azimuth here. Moondial, time to look at Moondial. Okay, we're ready. <laughs> <laughs> Sounded like the start oh. of a Pearl Jam song. <laughs> but through a vocoder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to go after a, like a homemade vocoder with like an empty box. Um, I don't know if I achieved that, but here, that's what it is, folks. <laughs> Made me smile, so yes, you did. Are you okay? Are you okay with old lighthouses? Yeah, I. I think if I were to have a job to go back in time and have a job, um, like a different job other than being on the radio. Mm-hmm. Um, I would be a lighthouse keeper. Mm. Even though it's you know, one of the most loneliest like jobs I can think of. Right. You, <laughs> you know, if I, I am a big fan of old lighthouse, like in a big way. I love lighthouse. Oh, the band. Right? Love lighthouse. Why would you love this? Yeah. Why wouldn't you love Lighthouse? Smooth. I mean, count me in for that. <laughs> I, I've never in my life been to an actual lighthouse, though. Like an actual one, because I've been in Alberta for most of my life. And there, no, there ain't much water <laughs> around here. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a great business proposal. I'm going to build a lighthouse in Alberta just in case the big earthquake comes. <laughs> yeah, first of its kind. There's like no water anywhere in Alberta. And they're going to be like, everyone's going to be like, Ryan is the craziest guy. He built a lighthouse in southern Alberta. And then all of a sudden, the big one comes. They'll be like, that Ryan's genius. Oh, sweetie. I know where I'll I'll invest all of my money. That's right. Good investment. Better than GameStop. Uh, Swedish nurse has won a competition to watch the entire Goatberg Film Festival from a lighthouse on an isolated island. Off the coast of Sweden, uh, Lisa Anroth beat 12,000 film fans from around the world who applied for this. Did you try to apply for this for real? You bet I did. It was, there no. was a whole thing you need to fill out. I was, I was curious. Why not? I, you know, seems, seems kind of neat, but there, there was like a whole thing you had to fill out. It wasn't, it wasn't worth it. Yeah. Sure. Good. Glad we got you a job. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the unemployment was boring. Uh, the nurse who has worked on COVID-19 wards during the pandemic said she hoped to enjoy being part of a totally different kind of reality for a week. Festival organizers were forced to curtail the festival by the pandemic, of course. Uh, there were no screenings in cinemas. Instead, the entire program will be streamed online. So she doesn't get to go to it? After she all? Is, she gets to watch it by herself in an abandoned lighthouse oh, on wow. the coast of Sweden with no one around and she gets to watch all the movies like first and everything cool okay so she's going to spend a whole week alone in the peter noster lighthouse on hamneskar island without a phone computer books or any other form of entertainment let's hope she doesn't go a bit cabin crazy like william defoe and robert pattinson in the 2019's the lighthouse Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> there will be another human on the island with her to make sure she is okay. That would be fun, though. Like a whole week. Mm-hmm. Do you have a fireplace? I don't think they have fireplace. Lighthouses have a fireplace. Nice little fireplace. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, they, you can't really insulate a lighthouse. It's just a giant stone column hollow. So, I mean, in that movie, they had a they had a fireplace in the lighthouse. So nice. Must I be hope real. So. <laughs> Are you okay? Are you okay with making up words? Uh, I prefer my words to to be as as real as I can make them. If I have a few like wobbly pops in me, I'll start making up words though. 
to describe how I feel. <laughs> I've, I'm, I'm, a, I'm pretty traditional with my words. You know, I like to stick to the English language. I find that, you know, most words come from a place and have meaning behind them. And so when people say they want to dip out and it's off the chain and all those things. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ryan says that. Yeah, off the wall, off the chain. In the his I, uh, in the his house. I like saying words that aren't real. It's fun. Uh, my the main one I say right now is Baba Booey. I know that that's like a, <laughs> I know that that's like a guy's name, but it was just like, I was watching Parks and Rec and, oh, and there's just a scene where one of the characters says it. And I just thought to myself, man, that sounds really funny. So I'll be playing video games with my friends and, or even if I score a sweet interview for the show and I'm like, yes, Baba Booey. Baba nice. Booey. <laughs> yeah, it's just fun to say. So I'm okay with made up words. All right. Some new words have been added to the uh, dictionary because of what's gone down in the States. So Doug Emhoff is the first male spouse of a vice president. Uh, and on Thursday, he became catalyst for a brand new dictionary entry. Miriam Webster added second gentleman officially to its dictionary, defining the term as the husband or male partner of a vice president or second in command of a country or jurisdiction. So... Um, there you go. So Emhoff noted the additional, uh, the addition saying, well, it's now official. And th that's kind of cool. This is a, this is a clip from CNN with more about the second gentleman. Let me introduce the woman I love. He was an ever present plus one on the campaign trail as his wife ran for president. The quiet guide, cheerleader when needed, active on social media as Mr. Kamala Harris. And sometimes the unscripted husband. In a security scare last year at a campaign event, a protester got this close to Harris. The female moderator got in between. Then one of the three men to charge and drag him away was Emhoff. The look on his face, unfiltered, unmistakable. What's notable to gender politics watchers is how Emhoff is changing the norms for American men. Hewing to other voters, and particularly other men, the need to sometimes step back and lift up women's voices in this process. And that sort of symbolic nod that Doug Emhoff seems to be giving is going to be important too to perhaps influence future generations of men. Also, don't mansplain things, men. <laughs> that would be another thing that he's good at not doing, yeah. uh, is avoiding that one. Did you see that video when that protester got to his wife? Like, you want to talk yeah. about like a dude who is ready to tear a head off? Um, that was cool. I mean, it was raw, right? Like it was raw, like, uh, uh, um, but I think it's awesome. It's a sign of the times, right? And what it is. And I love that they've included gentlemen. I think that, uh, more people could live into, into gentlemen. I, I think all of us could. I agree. And, um, and before we, we change topics here, one of my favorite made up words is mother trucker. <laughs> That's right. Mother gonna, trucker. I'm going to uh, quote Mark here with a small edit for uh, employment purposes, or at least sustained employment purposes. Uh, Mark's was abso-effin-lutely. Abso-effin-lutely. Yep. Mother trucker. <laughs> that sounds sounds like a very Canadian thing to say, right? Just because the aboot. Abso-effin-lutely. Lutely, uh, oh, yeah. eh? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, Thank yeah. Oh, yeah. We love it here, eh? Eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. Your thoughts and are you okay? Are you okay with spicy food? <gasps> Ooh. Uh, I something. Uh, oh, I was like, what the heck was that? <laughs> I I am the kind of person who really likes spicy food, but I don't have a good tolerance for it. So I want mm. to put it in more of what I eat, but I usually regret it. Mm. I'm with you there, bud. Right? Intolerant. Yeah. Oh, come on. Um, oh, that was his computer. Was, yeah. Is that what you... gotta, man, that sounded Passing like the a bump. fire one. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to... Marlo! <laughs> um, I'm going to um, tell you my story in a second here. Let's get through this quickly. Mike Jack deserves a new nickname after eating three of the world's hottest peppers in less than 10 seconds. He set a record, Guinness World Records uh, speed, by eating three Carolina Reaper peppers in 9.72 seconds. Guinness noted in a video of his feet that dropped last week on Facebook, 
To put this into perspective, a Carolina Reaper is about 200 times hotter than a normal jalapeno. Pepperhead.com reports 200 times. According to Guinness, Smokin' Ed's Carolina Reaper packs an average of 1.6 million Scoville heat units. Its creator, Ed Curry, said it's kind of like eating molten lava. Um, here's the moment Mike forced them down. Ah! See, uh, this one's got a crazy reaper tail on it. Go. One, two, three, four, swallow, five, six, seven, eight. Uh, oh yeah, Gregor was... <laughs> it feels so good. That hurts so bad. I can feel his pain. That was in London, Ontario. Yeah. Very cool. He's Canadian. Very nice. All right. Now, we did want to talk about Ryan uh, has... Ryan likes to watch the hot wing shows and all these pepper things. So the conversation about the Carolina Reaper... Uh, from the, the new world record of three of them in 10 seconds is, is right up your alley. So Ryan said that he'd be willing to eat one right now. Oh, not it never again because <laughs> I have had one. Let Ooh. me actually clarify that. I had a dried flake of one. I put it on the left side of my, of my tongue and half of my face went numb for 45 minutes. <laughs> And then again, I'm an idiot. I don't know why I did this. I had a Carolina Reaper sauce. My roommate can attest to this. We both put it on our pulled pork at a barbecue. Mm -hmm. We drank so much milk that we ended up chugging ranch dressing to try to stop the heat because it was so bad. We were in the, it was the worst. (laughs) It was awful. But it was kind of insane to experience that much heat. But I do not recommend it. (laughs) So it it was up your alley, but you probably ended up burning your alley as well. (laughs) the back alley alley was a little burnt you guys get mad at me for playing a fart sound effect when you're making jokes like that come on just a violent fart joke that violent fart sound effect that's all subtlety i'm never mad about him don't worry subtlety (laughs) subtlety never you uh so just to be clear you did it once and it was so terrible that you did it again i did it again and i would do it again kind of want to build up the tolerance you know (sighs) the tolerance i don't know (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.